Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's uh, Derek and John tonight for No Driving Gloves. Will's uh, taking probably a much-needed vacation. That seems to be all he ever claims to do, or how, he claims how, all I do. How come you give him vacation but not me vacation? It's more that he just doesn't click the link and connect tonight. <laughs> if you didn't, I guess I would have to stay, sit here and bore others. This allows us to continue our history on the automobile. I think the last time we started with uh, Da Vinci and got us to World War One, and the next twenty years or so, we're going to go World War One to World War Two, beginning maybe get to the end of World War Two. Uh, so, see what happened. And uh, then we'll do part three, and we'll have Will join us for part three of the history, because that's when we start getting into hot rods and street rods and um, people beginning to modify their cars a la him. And we'll continue this just every couple of weeks. We're going to hit and go through the history of the automobile. So, like I said, today we'll begin with World War One, somewhere beginning, middle, and continue on through. And get us to 1940, 1945. Yeah, but I'm actually going to break this pattern and and jump back because we missed probably one thing in the pre-World War I era that leads us into the pre-World War I era, if that's okay. Okay, because you're you're the one who wanted to start us in the 1700s last time, and I wanted to start at 1886. So I probably should let you go, because something tells me you know a little bit about these cars of the teens and the 20s, a little bit more than European sports car me. So go ahead, uh, enlighten me. Well, we... (laughs) I say enlighten me. (laughs) Quit talking. It's my turn. Okay. Enlighten me and the listeners. All right, John, I'll do that. (laughs) Um, So we talked, we hit on Cadillac, which made a very important development in 1912 with the electric self-starter. I think what we glossed over, um, you know, just in in trying to wrap things up, is that in 1914, Cadillac really introduces the first American, successful American V8 automobile. Now, we'd seen some V8 automobiles from Europe, uh, France in the very early 1900s, but here in America, Cadillac really pulls it off first in 1914, and it opens up kind of the floodgates to the development of V8 automobiles in the U.S. Because over the next basically three years, uh, we see in 1915, Peerless comes out with their V8. In 1916, Oldsmobile, of course, part of General Motors also developing off of Cadillac's success. Uh, Oldsmobile comes out with a um, V8. 1917, little known, uh, Chevrolet actually has a V8 in their cars in 1917. Uh, For some reason, and and probably the price point, um, it, it doesn't work as well for Chevrolet, so they actually move away from it again. And in 1917, another significant development is... Uh, the Lincoln Motor Car Company actually starts up. And this is, of course, um, Henry Leland's Lincoln Motor Car Company, not Ford's. Um, Ford will buy Lincoln later on. But 1917, Lincoln is introduced as an all-new car, the L-Series, and it comes out with a V8 engine in it. So it's kind of an extremely important time in the development of V8 history in the United States. So then that kind of 1917, 18, 19 period leads us into World War One. And as we talked about, yeah, World War One is a completely different war from any other wars we've seen because we now have automobiles, so internal combustion engines, driving machinery like cars, tanks, aircraft, uh, all these different things. So it it becomes a a totally different war front, uh, a lot of uh, more significant, uh, you know, damages to towns and landscapes uh, in Europe, as well as just even more devastating injuries and 
bodily damages and deaths that are more horrific because of the type of equipment that is being used in the war. So that's kind of where I wanted to kind of start us off prior to World War I, just to touch on that V8 history a little bit in the U.S. Going with V8 and that, and does that also, you know, we had the, you know, Packard Twin Sixes and the Cadillac V16s and that as we start getting into the later teens and uh, post-World War One, do you attribute that V8 technology as the beginning of the v- I want to say V shape for an engine, et cetera, or is there some predecessors? Why did we begin with a V8? Well, with the V8, you know, Cadillac is looking at the French Didion Bouton engine, and they basically copy it almost to a T. Uh, you literally look at an early Didion. Uh, Bouton engine from the 1910 to 13 period, and then look at a 1914 Cadillac engine, and it's it's basically identical. So some of it was trying to keep up with what the European front was doing, because Europe was always ahead of the U.S. in development of the automobile, as we mentioned in the last discussion on this, and so. American automobile manufacturers are always looking to Europe to kind of try to keep up. But I do believe that that really is kind of the beginning of the V technology with Cadillac. You know, there had been some other crazy experimental engines earlier on and and right around that time with like X engines and things like that. And, uh, but the the V configuration proved successful in Europe, and it clearly proved successful in the United States for at least the higher end companies that could afford to put V configuration engines in their cars because they sold at a higher price point. It was still new technology. It was still expensive technology. So you didn't, as I say, you know, with Chevy, you saw them go away from it because the price point just wasn't right for the brand name Chevrolet. But Cadillac, that was the right price point when you could introduce the V8. And then as you say, John, later on, introduce a V V16 Cadillac. And Packard in 1916, I think it was, introduced the Packard Twin Six, a V12 engine. They just called it the Twin Six. Um, so I really think this is that time period that we have to credit, you know, the American automobile industry really starting to understand the V configuration engine. So I would agree with you. We've now, you know, went back and established that, that little bit of timeline and information on the, the V motors and we obviously discussed World War One a little bit he- heavily in the last episode and how the automobile and the internal combustion engine changed warfare drastically uh, during that time period with the introduction of planes and tanks and the change in the cavalry uh, and such. And now we'll say the war's over. Uh, people are coming home, and I don't know, are we focusing, yes, we still, this is collector cars, so we kind of look at the world in general, and, you know, we be, we get into this era, 1919 kind of begins the, the booming 20s, hurrah, war's over, let's party. Where does the automotive, automotive industry lead after the war? We, I know there's a lot of new technologies that are involved that come in and play in the war. What do you think one of the f- most significant ones are immediately after World War One? I? I think personally, and we see it, and we'll talk about it when we get to World War Two as well, but wars at this time drive technology, as you just said, and the the benefit of World War One even though it was not as difficult on the American auto industry as, and I don't know if difficult is the right word, but it, it was not as much of a, a burden on 
the auto industry as World War II will be, but they learned a lot. They, American automobile industry had to make sure the engines they were building, the the vehicles they were building, the equipment they were building was more reliable than it had ever been. And what that leads to is the 1920s become really the era where the American automobile becomes a reliable automobile that you can literally get in it, start it up with an electric self-starter, everything you need, get the car running and drive from New York to California and not have to worry that much about something breaking down or having a catastrophic failure because the industry has now learned how to make more reliable parts and really advance the technology of the internal combustion engine to where it is a, by all means, modern automobile for the American public. And I think that's the biggest thing that comes out of World War One, is just really making the American automobile reliable, trustworthy, and something that you can get in, drive, and not really have to know as much as you had to know in the teens and 19 aughts, because it's very much more self-explanatory in some ways than some of the early cars had been. Uh, so that's that's probably the biggest technological leap that comes out at this time. And that's where I was going to allude to is we talked pre-war, all, all the different ideas behind automobiles, steam, electric, gasoline. And your belief is that World War One advanced the internal combustion engine and possibly was the death knell to these alternative forms of powering our vehicles, and that's when we became a petroleum-dependent hobby and industry and has lasted for basically the, the next 100 years until we, we've reached today's you know, electric uh, and fuel cell vehicles. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. It's, you know, not the early 1920s, uh, the electric car is almost dead. There's, there's a, Detroit electric is still holding on and, and maybe a few other small ones. Um, well, not small ones. Some of the other big ones, Baker, by then Baker Rao Lang had merged and, you know, they're, they're struggling to hold on through the twenties. Stanley Steamer is struggling to hold on in the early 20s. You know, Abner Doble comes out with the Doble steam car in the early 20s and only lasts for a year, a little over a year, that only a few are ever built because it's just a struggling industry. And yes, World War I proved the viability of the internal combustion automobile and vehicle. and it was the choice of the U.S. Army, which led to better development of it and just showed that steam and electric were not up to what cars needed to be, especially for war. So it is that turning point. I, I strongly think it is It is the turning point in that. And now that we've basically established the power for our vehicles for the next 100 years with World War One, and the... Uh, I guess the my belief is that the steam cars and the electric cars that hung hung on for the next couple of years, you know, everything was pretty much gone by 1925. Were inventors and creators still utilizing what they believed in prior to World War One? Now that the war was over, they had an opportunity to still market and push these devices. But like like you said, and I've said. The world had decided we're we're using gasoline. Uh, obviously, we had a lot of construction and roads were better. Fuel stations were improving. Fuel pumps were improving. You know, the infrastructure was being laid and the groundwork in place for the gasoline-powered automobile for, again, like I said, the next century. Now that we've laid that in, what where are we going? 
I'm going to pr- probably just kind of let this sit and let you dictate and ask questions and poll because you're, like I said, you're going to be much more knowledgeable on this than I. This is where things get exciting. The mid 1920s. That's because Alexander Graham Bell had the phone and that's when we introduced the car phone. No, not at all. No, no. Let me handle this, John. Okay. All right. As you said, we we've got basically steam and electric are are dead by this point. The internal combustion engine is the way to go. Almost every major car company that's out there manufacturing cars has gone to internal combustion. And so we've seen a lot of car companies die. Yeah, we do not have near the number of automobile manufacturers in the US that we had really prior to World War One, prior to, let's say, 1912. So everybody's got an internal combustion engine. Everybody's building cars that are basically boxes on wheels. Well, if everybody's doing that, what makes somebody want uh, a Chevy over a Peerless or, a, let's say, a Cadillac over a Peerless? What what's the difference? They look almost the same. They've got V8 engines or they've got inline four-cylinder engines or whatever. They look the same. They drive the same. Who cares? And that's what the auto industry started to notice. And actually, for a number of the car companies that were out there, sales started to slump. And people were trying to figure out what in the world do we do to get sales back up. And there's a couple key players that figure this out. And it happens almost at identical times, which is it's kind of interesting because Alfred P. Sloan, who's you know running essentially running GM, General Motors, he comes up with a slogan in, in 1924, and that slogan is a car for every purse and purpose. And most people have probably heard that. Alfred P. Sloan does that, and this is the beginning of what we know as kind of the ranking of General Motors, even to this day, where you've got Cadillac, Buick, you used to have Pontiac and Olds, and then Chevrolet, you've got that tiered ranking to their cars. Well, that's a car for every person purpose. Cadillacs are for the wealthy people that have a lot of money in that purse. And Chevrolets are for the you know farmer, the working class man that needs to use it as a machine for his everyday work as the purpose, but doesn't have a lot of money in that purse. And that's what Alfred P. Sloan does. He starts making those different kind of class-ranked automobiles to help sell the idea of owning an automobile. It also gives people something to work up to and achieve. I can start with a Chevy, and then I slowly work my way up that line till I own a Cadillac and I've made it. So it was almost an incentive program in some ways as well. And right around the same time, 23-24, Alfred P. Sloan also figures out that we can't make cars look the same for four, five, six, seven, eight in GMs. In Chevy's case, it had been about seven or eight years since a real big body change had happened. And the 1920 three or 24 model year looked completely different from the old one. He, he made a model change and he introduced the idea of model changes about every three years back then they, they do it a little differently now, but about every three years back then GM would do essentially a model car, a model change and make the body style look different on the model of automobile they're putting out. And that also, I introduced the idea of basically used antiquated automobiles because in three or four years, your car is not going to look like the newest one that the neighbor has. And then you're going to want to go out and buy the new one that looks nice and shows that you can keep up essentially with the Joneses, keep up with the neighbors. So Alfred P. Sloan is figuring this out. And at the same time, a gentleman down in Indiana is figuring this out as well and that's Eric Loban Cord, E.L. Cord, the man who would eventually own the Auburn Cord Duesenberg Empire. And in 1924, 
as kind of the head salesman of Auburn, he figures out that the 1924 sales have slumped so bad that the company is headed basically for bankruptcy and receivership, and the company is going to go under. So he actually convinces the head of the heads of Auburn, the Auburn Automobile Company, to restyle the 1924 automobile, the Auburns, and make them look different for the 19, the unsold ones and sell them as 1925 Auburns. And that's exactly what they do. They put a body line across the hood and then down the side of the car, completely changing the look of the Auburn and sales skyrocket. They make a new looking car and people want to buy it because it's fresh, it's new, and it's interesting. So this mid-1920s period is where we really get the introduction and idea of styling the automobile. And John, I'm I'm betting you can probably guess where I'm going to go next in 1927. I could take a stab at it, but... A lot of things happened in 27 to me. Of course, the, um, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, No, there we go. Etzel Ford convinces Henry to kind of change his ways and do a radical redesign of the Model T. Is that, is that where we're going? That is one of the two places I'm headed next. And yes, that is, that is the one I was going to start with. I'm trying to. So yeah, I was working on number two there. Well, you can edit this out. You want a hint? Well, no, I I don't edit anything out. It's true and honest, off the cuff <laughs> broadcasting here. How dare you even <laughs> insinuate that? Does does not Chevrolet kind of do something? I guess they were a little bit more radical a couple of years before, and that's what really pushed Stetzel. No, I can't figure it out. Let's just go ahead and talk about um, the evolution of the Model T. And it's a conversation I had this week, and maybe you can shed light on it. It's a little side road, but, you know, Ford had the Model A, the Model B, the Model C, and became successful in 1908 with the Model T. Did we run out of letters? Did we have a model UVWXYZ and then had to start over with A? Or why did we go from T to A? No, we that is not what happened. But as you allude to, and I think we talked about a little in the early automobile section, Ford Motor Company started in 1903 with Model A, and then they worked through what's called the Alphabet Series, the A, the B, the C, the a, B, C, F, K, N, R, S. There we go. Got them all. And those are the series they run through until they introduce the T. And it's it's said, although I, I don't know that we've ever really gotten any hard, hard proof, that the missing letters are cars that were being worked on and looked at to be developed, but Henry didn't really like them, so they scrapped and went to the next letter. That's why we jump letters so much. But what happens in 1927, is, as John has said, is, of course, Etzel Ford convinces Henry Ford that it's time to end the Model T. We got to back up a little bit because there's a reason for that. And that goes back to 1922-23 with Alfred P. Sloan and General Motors this introduction, everything they do in 23 and 24, uh, right around that same time, I think it's 24, uh, 25, Ford Motor Company, prior to that, is the number one selling automobile with the Model T in the United States. They sell more cars than anyone else. Alfred P. Sloan changes the idea of what GM's doing and sales skyrocket. For General Motors. They introduce new cars. They introduce new looking cars. They have colors. They're not just cars that are black, like the Model T was after 1914. And more Americans start buying General Motors branded vehicles, and Ford Motor Company loses the number one spot. Well, that's not good for business. And sales continue to decline no matter what Henry Ford and Ford Motor Company does. 
And by 1927, Ford Motor Company is actually on the verge of going bankrupt and the company shutting down completely. There's even records of different investors and companies offering to buy Ford Motor Company from Henry Ford because of how bad of shape it is in. Even though in 1926, Ford Motor Company introduces colors to the Model T line. So 26, 27, you could actually get a Model T in color rather than black. It doesn't help. It doesn't really sell the cars any better than it had been. Because essentially underneath that body, the car is still really a 1909 Ford Model T. Not a lot has changed technologically. It's it's very similar to what he introduced in 1909. And Etzel finally proves to his dad that he knows what he's doing. And he successfully changes Henry's mind and convinces him to build a new automobile. Now, if you look at a Model A, a Model A's nickname is the Baby Lincoln. And that's how Etzel convinced Henry. Etzel had done so well with the Lincoln uh, Motor Car Company after Ford bought it from Henry, Henry Leland that Henry started to see that Etzel could make a car company run right and and do good things. But Etzel also noticed that they couldn't just go to the next model letter because it wouldn't show that the car had changed so drastically. So Edsel's idea is we call it the Model A because Ford Motor Company is starting over. We're having a rebirth of our automobile. We're going back and starting all over with Model A. And that's why they call it the Model A. That's, that is the reason. And it changes the com- company immensely. It uh, sales skyrocket again, although they never really catch up to General Motors in automobile sales. Truck sales are another thing, but it at least saves the company. And from 1928 until 1931, Ford Motor Company builds the Model A Ford that most people know uh, today as a Model A. They don't really know the 1903 version. And it's it's a major change. Ford Motor Company is saved, and we get some really great things coming out of Ford Motor Company right after that 1931 year, moving into 32. But the other big thing that happens in 1927 is over at General Motors. And General Motors does something very interesting. They're working on the every person, uh, every car for every purse and purpose slogan. They're still following that. And they decide they need a new car. They need another kind of mid-range car just below the Cadillac. And they want to introduce a car called the LaSalle. And they find a a young stylist, um, automobile stylist, uh, kind of coach builder out in California working at one of the Cadillac dealerships out there, Cadillac dealership called Don Lee Cadillac in in California, Los Angeles area. The young man's name is Harley Earl. And they love the work he's doing with rebodying Cadillacs out at the Don Lee Cadillac for some of the big movie stars. And they bring Harley Earl in and they say, Harley, would you design the look of the new LaSalle? And Harley Earl does. It's on contract. He designs it. It's a hit. And about a year later, General Motors hires Harley Earl to be the head of their essentially design department. At the time, it was art and art and styling department, I think it was. And basically, Harley Earl is the first artist and kind of designer hired at a major automobile company to start styling automobiles. And he actually creates this whole division that is strictly design and styling of automobiles at General Motors and completely changes the game of the automobile industry in styling. He brings out the LaSalle first, obviously, in in 27 and 28. And then he moves on to redesigning the look of Cadillac and makes it an extremely curvaceous, truly sexy automobile. And, I mean, they just basically give him 
free reign of that design and Harley Earl turns out some of the most beautiful automobiles that we still see today and and really some of the very highly collected automobiles out of General Motors, Cadillac and and Buick divisions they come from Harley Earl and a, a good friend of mine uh in the museum industry Leslie Kendall out at the Peterson he's chief historian at the Peterson has a great uh, saying, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact quote, but it's basically along the lines of Harley Earl is the most collected automobile designer in the world that one no one knows about. Because Harley Earl touched so many car designs at General Motors and no one really understands that they have a car in their collection that's designed by Harley Earl. Because you have to understand, this is the man in 1927 that introduces the LaSalle, and in 1953 introduces the Corvette. And he has touched almost every car that has come out of General Motors in that time period. So Harley Earl in 1927 is probably one of the biggest changes for the American auto industry that that we'll see come out of the 1920s that affects automobile design really up until today. But the man is in the industry until really the 1960s and still influences it even after he retires. And I think we talked a little bit in the pre-show um, on you know, cars always carried that buggy-ish look from the inception of the car to Model T and the Model A and such. And yes, Harley Earl comes in in 27 and starts making changes, but I think it takes, you know, a decade or so, and all of a sudden we start getting you know, heavily stylized cars. You had mentioned EL Cord, and of course you get the Coffin Nose, you know, Cord 810 and 812, which was radically different than the L29 Cord. And you start getting the, but even the Cord was still front fender separated from the hood and engine compartment and, you know, running boards and uh, spare tire and on the fenders and such. and I think you start seeing Harley getting more and more aggressive with his styling as we approach World War II. And then, of course, you know, we're going to jump here and we'll cover it episode in the future. After World War II, I know you touched on his influence on the Corvette and, you know, things like that. After 1945, people wanted new, they wanted different, they wanted change or, you know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of money, a lot of people coming home, a lot of different thinking and styles. And all of a sudden, a bunch of 20-year-olds and 22-year-olds, you know, ecstatic that the war was over, that they were alive. They had decent GI bills and, you know, money in their pockets, new families. And he just came in at a right time and people saw it and he probably falls into one of the most, definitely one of the most influential people in all of automobile history. I mean, you know, Henry Ford put us on wheels. You know, Harley Earl gave us some of the cool stuff we have today. We can throw in some of the designers from overseas and such. But I will agree with you that he, you know, he made he made the difference. He made cars what cars are. Uh, up into up into today, I think if you, if you go and you talk to, you know, you could ask Will, you could ask Chip Foose, you could ask Troy Trepenier, uh, you know, the hot rod builders, you could, you know, um, you know Boyd Coddington. They all were probably influenced by by Harley because he he proved that you could, you know, do some, frankly, some cool stuff and. He was a rebel and the people that followed him, you know, uh, Chuck Jordan and such that stayed at General Motors, they were all, you know, all rebels and they all put pushed the boundaries and didn't necessarily conform. And I think it's a good, good thing that they 
or this solid type A personality and buck the trend, I guess. Yeah, totally. I mean, totally agree that it is, again, that 1920s into that 30s period with someone like Harley Earl in the industry, it rapidly changes it leading up to World War II, rapidly changes it. And I think we see some of the, as you say, really cool cars coming out right there in the late 30s into that World War II um, era that really pushes more limits in that post-World War II era. So yeah, huge, huge significance with Harley Earl coming into the industry. So now we've got Etzel convincing Henry that the Model T was dead and the Model A has developed and, you know, needed to be created in kind of response to to Harley Earl. You have Harley Earl jumping in and all of a sudden fully taking us out of the buggy world and putting us into the automotive world. We've established the internal combustion engine's the way to go. Where do we go? To me, the you know, kind of the next jump is while the Model T lasted... 1908 to 1927. The Model A only lasted 1928 to 1932. And as you led the show off, the 32 Ford in the introduction of the Ford V8 and, you know, made popular by celebrity endorsements by, say, John Dillinger or um, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Um, Is that where we jump or am I missing a couple of things there in that four years? Well, I think one of the things that you touched on, uh, one of the companies you touched on, and we already touched on uh, a little bit ago with EL Cord, Eric Loban Cord, you just brought up the coffin nose cords that come out a little later in the 30s and the L29. In 1929, Cord introduces the L29, and it is the first successful American front-wheel drive automobile. So we see the technology of front-wheel drive developing in the pre-World War I era. Most people think it doesn't come out, you know, true front-wheel drive doesn't come out until the Olds Tornado in the 1960s. That's not true. We have it in the 1920s and 30s through the Cord Company. Uh, It's just very little known because they were such expensive cars and it was expensive technology. So... You know, I don't want to glance over that, but you know, that is an important technology in the late 20s and early 30s that carries through almost to World War II. And because I, I always like to interject with this, this, this stupid stuff, uh, Cord also um, was, was one of the few American cars that utilized that pre-selector transmission I've alluded to in the past. Um, I'm not sure if it was actually on the L29, but on the 810 and the 812, it had the pre-selector allowing you to choose a gear before you ne- needed it. Uh, just one, another one of those little features pushing, you know, cord ahead and I guess jumping to the 810 and 812. I'm, again, four years ahead. <laughs> First introduction of the, of the pop-up headlamps. I mean, you know, they're, he is for short-lived as the Auburn Cord Duesenberg Company was. You know, they, they barely made it, you know, what, 15 years, 20 years. There was a lot of influence and a lot of technology and a lot of cutting edge that, that came of them. But let's get let's get back in our DeLorean, go back a couple of years to that 1930-32 era as we start getting into performance. We start getting into a little bit more styling, uh, getting, you know, the cars are becoming more one the fenders are flowing in with the bodies and they're kind of being thought of as a unit and not you know some guy draws the hood some guy draws the body some guy you know does the fenders or you buy a chassis and buy a Duesenberg chassis and you take it to somebody else and they create it the manufacturers are becoming manufacturers from from Ford and Chevrolet all the way up through Cadillac and that and producing, producing the, you know, whole cars and starting to buy up 
the body companies, you know, Fisher gets purchased and um, I'm drawing a blank on the other company I'm thinking of, but the body companies that used to do the aftermarket bodies that kind of like, you know, I like to bring things to modern terms is AMG used to be a tuner house separate from Mercedes. And eventually they did, they did stuff so well, Mercedes ended up buying them and bringing them in house. And that's what General Motors did with body companies. That's what Chrysler did. Uh, Ford always kind of had everything in-house with themselves. But we start seeing the mergers of the companies, the smaller guys going by the wayside. Um, but I guess also by 1930, thinking it through, we've established our big, th- big three. You know, Chrysler, Dodge, uh, Plymouth, DeSoto were kind of one company. General Motors had the tiers that you alluded to with Sloan. Ford had Lincoln, Mercury, Ford, and did they not have a fourth for a while there under their banner, or am I imagining things? And Well, it depends on um, what year you're talking about here, because, of course, Mercury wasn't around yet in the 30s, in the early 30s. Um, but it, really, in, in 1932, when we see Ford bring out the V8, the, the Ford flathead V8, it's really just Ford and Lincoln at the time. Now they also had the tractor companies, if that's what you're thinking of, like Fordson. Well, everybody has their tractor companies, Porsche, Lamborghini. I mean, all all, all the good companies, car companies built tractors at some point. Exactly. <laughs> Even international. <laughs> so, yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> actually, internet, yeah, very good point. Yeah, they built a good car. Case, Case did as well. And now it's Case International for the tractor company. There we go. Just think of John Deere would have built a car. I guess they do now. They call it the Gator. But let's go back to 1932 and I'll quit sidetracking us. We're getting close to an hour and we still got eight eight years at least to cover. No, we can wrap that up in no time. So 1932. Yeah. 1932 to 1942. It's boring. No. Uh, 1932, Ford Motor Company introduces the the... Ford Flathead V8. Why is this a big deal? We've already had V8s in the United States. We talked about them. Cadillac, uh, Peerless, Lincoln. We've had V8s. We've had V12s. We've had V16s. Why is Ford's V8 so important? Well, it's the first time they cast what's called a monoblock V8. This is a one casting for the main block of the engine, the monoblock Uh, of the V configured engine and it has removable heads. The flat heads are removable. You can work on the valves and the pistons by simply taking the head off the engine. You may have to drop the pan to pull a piston, something like that, but easily accessible, removable flathead V8 monoblock. It's an engineering uh, dream. I mean, it's, it's, they're successful in doing it. It's a successful engine. It's reliable. It's easy to work on. And it is just an amazing leap in V8 technology in the United States. So it's, it's actually extremely important. They still produced in 1932 a four inline four cylinder known as the Model B. Uh, you know, they were the same cars. They just, that the V8s were in. They just put a, a kind of updated Model A engine into them. There were some changes. But the V8 is really what's important. And, you know, you see the uh, inline four-cylinder disappear from Ford's offerings, and they go strictly with the flathead V8 many, many years to come. And what does our co- competition have against or going up against this Ford V8 I mean, General General Motors obviously is running uh, four cylinders and eight cylinders. And was Chrysler at that point in time in Dodge? I can't remember. Were they two V eight technology or? Well, you've got you don't really have any other cars using V eight technology in by the nineteen thirties when Ford comes out with the thirty two. Uh, you know, V8, um, you know, Chevy's back to, you know, inline, really inline fours and inline sixes. Um, Chrysler's running mostly inline sixes. Uh, Packard's running inline eights. 
everybody's moved more to the inline technology because it was a little more affordable and you could make they were making it with removable heads. Of course, the inline engines, it's very easy to make a removable head. Um, a lot of the companies, you know, Ford was the one that figured out how to do the monoblock with removable head V8s. A lot of the other companies couldn't figure it out. So really in, in the, the V8 world, Ford takes a huge jump uh, because all their competition is running inline you know, four, six, and eights, and they're running a really awesome V8 engine, as you said, numerous endorsements for the car, maybe not from the most savory of people, uh, you know, John Dillinger, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, people like that using V8 Fords to rob banks and get away fast. Uh, so, you know, Ford is way ahead at this point of all the other car companies in developing an engine technology. And of course, this is a, the, the 32 Ford V8 all the way up until 1930, is it 36 or 37? I can't remember the exact year uh, that they introduce a, a lower horsepower. The, the first V8 is a 85 horsepower and then in 36 or 37, they introduce a 60 horsepower, a little, you know, kind of detuned engine. And I mean, they're just, they're, they're way, way ahead of everybody in this. And it's, it's, it is a big boost for Ford Motor Company. Uh, they pick up a lot more sales and it's, you know, going to drive the industry forward, especially in the post-World War II era in developing V8 technology. And I'm going to say it, we're talking powertrains and a little bit of the styling, but the creature comforts in the cars are starting to come more into play. I, you start seeing, I guess, taking care of the passenger a little bit better and, again, debugifying the, uh, the automobile and making it more of a living room place you want to spend time with. Upholstery uh, start getting better, interior styling. I uh, would even say agronomics kind of start coming into play. I, you know, I still can't say that it was the world's best agronomics, but uh, I think, you know, all of this really, we especially getting into the mid-30s and that, we really start paying attention to the consumer and realizing that this is, you know, no longer a toy of the rich or... This is a tool that's you going to be utilized every day, and the again the vehicles are developing, and the manufacturers are realizing that, as you said er, earlier, people want more from their cars than something to get them from the you know farm to the city quickly, and you know bringing the world together. Um, we just start. We don't have the interstate highway system in sight yet, but you know, like you said, paved roads. It's now capable. Of, you're capable of driving cross country. You're able to go on a couple hour trip reliably. The 30s, why? To me, not a lot happens in the 30s. A lot does happen in the 30s. It gets you know interrupted by World War II, which I think World War II as I said a little bit earlier and we'll cover in the next episode is probably one of the best things that could have happened for the automobile while it shut down production for a couple of years and that, you know, the technology and what people wanted immediately after world war two, what was developed and created in world war two, all of that filtered through to the automobile. It's, it's just, a, like I say, it's a changing point. I think the 1930s is where we went from it being a fancy toy, you know, the stuff we discussed in the previous episode, you know, use of motorcycles to cars and things. By the 30s, the car was established. This is the way it's going to be. Motorcycles are going to be the toys. Um, and to survive in the world, especially rural America, you had to have an automobile now. Yeah, very true. Very true. Uh, you know, and, and it is, it's, it's in the twenties, you know, really the automobile was either like you say, something for the, ex 
extremely, somewhat extremely wealthy if you wanted a really nice car. Or the other end was you had a very rudimentary automobile that was just cheap and affordable. So there was a big kind of diverse, or there was actually not, there wasn't diversity. There was just one or the other. Uh, you didn't have a lot of mid-range options. In the 30s, you know, that late 20s and moving into the 30s in is when we start to get much more in that option range of the affordability of cars and, and more people being able to afford a little nicer car and all of those. Of course, the stock market crash in 1929, which we didn't even talk about, uh, immensely affected some of the automobile industry because a lot of the higher end automobile companies started shutting down. You know, they, they, didn't have number one the buyers that the the extreme wealthy of America a lot of them had lost their money so they didn't have the amount of buyers they had prior to the stock market crash but of course the crash also affected you know the business world in in many other ways with not just you know the the buyers of the automobiles having money or not, but also all of the supply industry that was affected in the stock market crash, the businesses that closed, that lost everything. So there were a lot of factors in those companies closing down, but that's when we see companies, you know, in the early thirties due to that stock market crash, we see companies like Peerless and um, Duesenberg holds on for a while, but man, they struggle into the the mid thirties. You know, you see those higher end car companies just starting to find other things to do, or just shutting their doors completely. So there's a big impact right there on the the number of high end automobiles in the U.S. There's there's some economic factors there as well. Well, you're right, and I guess we did gloss right over the Great Depression and how it did affect the automobile because, as you said, it, it affected the high-end high companies, but the buyers that could still afford the vehicles, because not to be honest, not everybody went broke, not everybody jumped out of a window. Wealth maintained itself, but people hid their wealth, and the wealthy were intelligent enough that you couldn't roll down the street in your 20 grand Duesenberg you know, by the bread lines and the soup kitchens with people starving. They they knew what that would portray and possibly also knew that their um, <laughs> car probably wouldn't survive being parked somewhere. So you had that. And then, of course, if the wealthy can't afford cars, the middle class can't afford cars. And we just... I guess we we even in the pre-war we glossed over the the social economics and you know some of the stuff Ford did with you know creating wages and the you know forty hour work week and that wasn't to create a forty hour work week that wasn't to be fair to the employees that was a way for Ford to get his employees to buy his cars it's just you know everything's marketing everything's thought through well. You know, like you said, Derek, we, we glossed over the depression. Maybe we'll have to have a social economic discussion and how money and politics have affected the automobile through the years. There's another show topic I'll add to the list. Uh, probably a boring one, but a very interesting one because as cars became part of our lives, it still it still affects to this day. And why we try to avoid politics on this show you know, it's why the General Motors bankruptcy was permitted. It's why the sale of Chrysler to Fiat was permitted, because the economy cannot take the blow of one of these manufacturers closing and the trickle-down effect, using a Reagan term, of all the ensuing jobs and all the businesses that are, you know, that General Motors keep keeps alive, that Ford keeps alive, that Chrysler keeps alive and you know that does come into play is keeping literally tens of millions of people employed I guess the depression is something we shouldn't have overlooked but that's <laughs> right <laughs> so well and we didn't we're talking about it right now and the, we didn't really get into World War II 
but we'll t- I want to say let's let's lightly discuss World War II so it sets us up for the next episode because in the next episode I really want to get into you know 1945 and of course that inter- you know we'll introduce the sports car to America uh, that'll introduce this you know styling and the hot rod speed culture to America and I really want to start the next episode there without having to start it with the World War II topic. We all know that you know when we're, when they were abruptly thrust into World War II in 1941, we mobilized and everything went to the war effort. The auto manufacturers shut down their plants and produced you know airplanes and tanks and whatever it took to win the war. Everybody built Jeeps. Ford built Jeeps, AMC built Jeeps, Jeep built Jeeps. However, you know, if it was a manufacturer, they were building Jeeps. It didn't, it didn't matter. It wasn't, oh, it's our product. We're going to be the only ones that build it. You know, I will jump into politics. I always wondered that when General Motors owned Hummer, if we would have went to war and that was the current vehicle for our military, would have they let somebody else help build that? Never know, won't ever know with the, the demise of Hummer a few years ago, and now the choices of some new military vehicles. And when we mobilized for war, auto production ended. You will occasionally see 1941 and 1942 cars available, but there are not many of them. I'm going to go out on a limb, and there's always exceptions to every rule. This is America. You will never see a 1943 or a 1944 automobile or a truck unless it's military related and you know styling took a whole took a break and stopped and we got to the end of the war and like i said people started coming home uh everybody was happy and that really it took a couple of years to get america back rolling and thinking and you know getting um some sketches done and some updates because, you know, the 1945 cars that were sold, 1946s, were really what was supposed to be sold in 41 or 42. It was literally a five-year break from an industry to make sure the country survived so that, not that one industry, but to make sure that the country survived to go on. Do you have anything to add about World War II there, Derek, or did I try to summarize it fairly quickly and dirty, but yeah, you summarized it pretty quick and, and uh, as you say, quick and dirty, but um, <laughs> a couple things I just want to touch on that that will help us understand the post-World War II era. Number one, jump back to a little bit before World War II in 1936 when Chevrolet introduces the turret top. And the turret top is the first time we see an American automobile with a full metal roof uh, that's able to be stamped on in one stamping. And what this shows us is the advancement in the machinery that the automobile industry is using. And we're able to stamp out you know, entire panels that are as large as the roof of an automobile. That's, that is really important. Because the machinery, the the you know the stamping equipment, the tooling and die you know tool and die industry, these things all start taking off. And then we hit World War II, as John says, you know, 1942. There's basically the government shuts down production of a lot of things, not just the automobile industry, but a lot of industries. The automobile industry is probably most notable and obviously what's most important for us to talk about, but. The government steps in and tells all of those factories what they're going to be building, how they're going to retool, or how they're going to revamp their equipment to build what needs to be built. Oh, and by the way, while you're doing that, we're sending a bunch of our 18 to, let's say, 20, you know, 28 to 32 year old boys and men over to war, and we want to do everything we can to bring them home. So, your standards have to be brought up as well for safety and quality of your um, products. So government kind of standards and quality affects the way the machinery is being built as well as the quality of the product coming out of those factories so that 
you know the the GIs that are fighting World War II are safe as well, or as safe as we can make them be with the technology we have at the time. And I want to get that out there because that is a big factor in the auto industry post World War II. You got it. We 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 have to remember those kind of government, um, you know, essentially requirements on certain qualities being met with the equipment being built. Um, so that is that is extremely extremely important. I'm going to go ahead and add to that because. Um... I'm sure I'm going to hear about it from our female listeners and that we're all of a sudden sending, like Derek said, everybody really 17 to 30 years old over to fight a war. And the women then were asked to step up to these traditionally men roles in the factory. And that's where we get Rosie the Riveters. And I uh, know that, that again changes. We're talking a little bit more World War II than we are talking cars here. But maybe that's why all of a sudden we have a little, you know, again, post-war, we had women more involved with the cars and you had them wanting to get a little bit dirty. And I think that after World War II, women are more mechanical, more car-ish than they definitely were before. Maybe that's just me. Maybe me trying to be not in sexist, just turn sexist. But I apologize. But I just wanted to throw out that we we owe them for the continuation of everything there. No, and I don't think, uh, you know, personally, I, I don't think that in any way that should be taken as sexist. Um, there have always been women interested in the automobile from the very earliest days. I mean, Bertha Benz, Carl Benz's wife, drove the Benz Patton Motorwagen basically on its first test drive because she was so tired of him not doing anything with it. Um, sounds familiar. Uh, and, oh, sorry, I digress. Um, but, you know, and, and even some of the early cross-country automobile trips, there there were women that did it. I mean, there have always been women interested, but the fact that we sent our men off to war and the women stepped up in this country to make sure that their loved, you know, their loved ones, their husbands, their brothers, their fathers, their whoever was over there fighting had the equipment they needed, had the, you know, support they needed from home. It did increase the interest of a lot of those women in getting involved in those type of manufacturing and industrial jobs. They proved that they could do it. They proved in some cases that they could do it better than the men. And when the men came home, they had a hard time getting jobs back. And I think it was, although the, you know, obviously war is horrible for any country, for any, you know, any, in any situation, war is not a good thing, but it was a great thing for our country to show what the women in this country could do and that they rival men in this country. It, it, it got the, well, it kind of got the point across. It should have got the point across loud and clear. That is a very important part of this story. So I completely agree with you, John. I mean, this is, this is a major, um, you know, even somewhat cultural shift in America. We talk, you know, we say we glanced over the economy and, and, you know, all of that. Well, here's a cultural change that we don't want to gloss over either. Well, I think that puts us to the end of World War II. I'm sure we'll think of a couple of things in the next couple of weeks as we're beginning the research for the next episode of this multi-part series on, um, cars through the ages, I guess. But that also puts us at a near that hour mark that we always want to cut off at. Do you have anything that we didn't touch on? I know you added in the uh, turret top Chevrolet. I know you had a ton of notes for tonight. We actually kind of prepped for this episode. But anything you need to add to this, Derek, or do we revisit a little bit later or I'm I'm sure there's some things we glossed over and and didn't hit. I mean, we tried to hit the most important parts that that we could think of. Um, 
you know, I, I, I can't think of anything else right off the top of my head, but 10 minutes from now after we're done recording, I'll think of a few things. Okay, so it'll be just, just like normal. Yeah. But but with that, if you guys or ladies out there have any, you know, show topic ideas for us or have any questions, you know, we're, we're there, there for you. You know, look for us at, you know, uh, nodrivinggloves.com. Just, it's going to be a very simple website that's going to become. It still takes you to the old page, but it provides you some links to where you can listen to the show. Uh, you know, look us up on uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play Store, um, Stitcher. We're trying to be anywhere. If you try to find us on a, uh, your podcast catcher or something and you don't see us, send us a note. You know, no driving gloves at gmail.com. It's really simple. Uh, just give us some feedback. Let us know. Give us show topic ideas. Uh, like us on Facebook. That's where we're most active. We do some Instagram stuff also. No driving gloves. And it's all one word. There's no spaces in it. So check us out there. And with that, I'm going to wrap up for the week. And uh, thank you all for listening. Talk to you in a week. Have a good one.